and through his word. Let's get into that right now. We're going to look at Psalm 34 today. And we're going through the book of Psalms with the theme of awakening our heart into a true and an honest relationship with God. One of the things I love about David, who is the primary psalmist, there are several psalmists, but David is the primary one, is that he'll go from soaring heights of praise and worship to the lowest depths of darkness in his communications with God. And I think that's very realistic. Is, is that something that you can relate to? Sometimes you're, you're up on the mountaintop. Sometimes you're down in that valley. All of us are there, and intentionally so. God allows those things to occur in our lives so that we might be drawn to depend upon Him, to look to Him, to have faith in and trust in Him. Every experience, as we talked about last week, in our lives, we are able to give thanks for because God is involved in them. It's about relationship. And the psalm today, Psalm 34, very much about relationship, but a a sort of unique aspect to our relationship with God. The reality that he is our deliverer. That is, he allows us, sometimes through our own foibles, other times by his direction, to find ourselves in circumstances far beyond our ability to control, our ability to manage, so that we can seek him, cry out to him, and he can deliver us, and we can experience him as our deliverer. That was one of the things David called God in Psalm 18. He said, you are my deliverer. Now, Psalm 34 was written as a response to an experience David had. It's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21. But David was in the city of the Philistines. And the king of the Philistines, Abimelech, his personal name was Achish, but Abimelech was his formal title, was asked to see David. One of the the Philistine leaders brought David before Abimelech, and said, is this not David, the king of the Jews? Now, Saul was reigning as king at this time, but David had been anointed as king. And this leader of the Philistines said to Abimelech, is this not David, of whom they say Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands? And of course, the point in bringing David before Abimelech was to point out to the king the risk that David posed to him And ultimately, I believe, the design was to destroy David. But as David was brought before Abimelech, David feigned madness. He began to act insane. Began to behave as though he had no sanity. He would drool on his beard and speak in confusion and act as though he were absolutely out of his mind. And Abimelech, upon observing David, said, don't I have enough madmen in my kingdom? Do I need more? Away with them. And as a result, David was delivered. He was not killed by Abimelech. And of course, David ultimately did ascend the throne of Israel and reigned as a 
triumphant king. God had delivered him out of that very dangerous situation. Sort of gave him a unique pathway out. Have you ever feigned madness? Or <laughs> maybe not madness, but confusion. Really? I was supposed to do that? Oh, I, f- I forgot. So that's the setting for Psalm 34 here. And David begins, and we'll focus on this throughout the psalm, about his speech. He focuses on the fruit of his lips. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So David begins in these first three verses by stating that he is in a relationship with God where he understands the greatness of God. That God has the power, in fact, to deliver him. And David says, I will praise him for his deliverance, but I will also praise him at all times because he is worthy of my praise. Just as we read there during the worship and stewardship time of the worthiness of God, how as the lamb stands before the throne and takes the scroll from the Father, everybody ascribes worth to him. He is the one who was worthy to take the scroll, to open it, and to read its contents. God is worthy. Now, we think about God, accurately so, because the Bible reveals him in this way, as the creator of all things. Everything that we can see, everything that we cannot see but actually exists, God created and fashioned for his purposes. So that's an amazing thing. We look at the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's amazing, all of the creation that we see. And so we are able, in that respect, to glorify him. But then we narrow it down from his creation to his word. We look at his word, and we see within his word a truth that is revealed to us about himself and about us and about his plan for us, that it is a plan for good, for a future, for a hope. It tells a dramatic story of mankind's rebellion against God, but God's loving restoration of mankind to himself and the eternal future that awaits each and every one of us who trust in him. So we narrow down from the glory of God in creation to the glory of God as he reveals himself in his word. And David says here, I will glory in the Lord. Let those who were afflicted hear and rejoice. Let us exalt his name together. So he exhorts those who surround him who are willing to humble themselves and acknowledge that they serve a great God to come with him, to join together and to worship. Now, worship and praise, the fruit of our lips towards God, is something that is created within each and every person. We are designed for worship. Now, you may not fully appreciate that, understand it, or even live it out, but it is a truth. You are created for worship. That's how God designed us, to acclaim his greatness, 
to acknowledge His worthiness and to come before Him in thanksgiving for all that He has done for us. But sin has short-circuited that. And so we don't always ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Oftentimes, that worship finds its outlet in other ways. And we find false gods and idols, money, power, position, fame. And we seek glory in those things rather than in God our Father. So for the Christian who recognizes, who has come to faith in Christ, this is really marching orders for us, extolling the Lord at all times, recognizing that no matter our circumstance, we can allow his praise to be on our lips. We can speak forth his glory and exalt his name together. As we will see in a moment later on in the psalm, the fruit of our lips is the first order of obedience. So is that something that you practice? Is that something that uh, marks your life and your speech? Are you like David saying, I want his praise always to be on my lips? David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. So David was before Abimelech. It did not seem that there was a, a, a logical way out and yet the Lord provided it. David sought the Lord. And he says those who look to him, that is to the Lord, are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. So again, as I said, God will, in your experience, allow you, either through your own choices and actions or by his divine design, to find yourself in situations that require you to acknowledge something. This circumstance is beyond my ability. I can't manage this. What are my options? Where do I go to? What resource do I pull from in order to get out of this? And God's plan for us is to seek Him, to call upon Him, to recognize Him as our deliverer and the source of, of our strength from which we are able to step out of those circumstances. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is talking about Israel's captivity, the fact that Israel is going to go into captivity for 70 years to Babylon. And in very specific, he talks about the amount of time that they will be in Babylon as captives there. And that the Lord ultimately, however, will provide a deliverance for them. Listen to what Jeremiah records. This is in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you. I will fulfill my good promise to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, 
declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So God needed to discipline Israel. They had fallen into great idolatry. He needed to discipline them, and he was using the Babylonian nation to do that. But he said, my discipline for you will be measured. It will be 70 years. And at the end of that 70 years, I'm going to bring you back to this place, and you will find that I am good, that I have a plan for you that is good. It's a plan for a future and for a hope. But listen to what he qualifies this promise with. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Then I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from the nations and the places where I have banished you and bring you back to this place from exile. So part of the deliverance that God intended for Israel was predicated upon their crying out to him. They're acknowledging their need for him. And they're seeking of him with all of their heart. That's what David is speaking of here as well. Seeking the Lord with all of his heart, pouring out his praise to God, acknowledging the glory of the Lord, recognizing that the Lord will hear and deliver out of all of his troubles. And the same is true for you. This is a promise here in Jeremiah to Israel, but the character of the Lord and his intent towards his church is equally good, equally, if not more profoundly good, because in the promise to the church, we are promised the resurrection through Christ. That new life that overcomes all things. That promise to be co-regents with him. A few weeks ago, Mike Vader gave me a list of scriptures that speak of our position in Christ. And they're just very encouraging. I have them taped on the wall in front of my desk, and I read them very often. But one of the promises there is, is found in the book of Romans, and it says that we are joint heirs with him. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So the hope that you have as a Christian is superior to the promise to the Israelites to bring them back into the land. We have a promise of a new birth and an eternal reign with him as priests of the kingdom of God. Verse 8 in Psalm 34, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, Peter uses this scripture to speak of the beginning of the relationship that we have with God. And he characterizes it much like the relationship an infant has with its mother. He says, just like a newborn babe, crave spiritual milk that is pure so that by it you may grow up in your salvation 
now that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So when we come to Jesus and we have that initial taste, we recognize that he is good. He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf, that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, proving his love toward us. When we come to him, we begin to experience the delicious flavor that his love provides for us. But Peter exhorts to drink pure spiritual milk so that we may grow in relationship to our salvation. And then the writer to the Hebrews says that we are to continue to grow, moving beyond elementary teachings about Christ and grow towards maturity. Not once again laying the foundation of repentance and faith in God and instruction about cleansing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Solid food, it says, is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So taste and see that the Lord is good. The salvation that you have experienced in Jesus Christ, the faith that you have expressed, And the new life that you have experienced is only the beginning. You have seen that the plate before you is filled with good food. Continue to eat it. Continue to grow by it. That's the exhortation of Peter and the writer to the Hebrews. And certainly David here is exhorting those who stand around him, to come out of the darkness and into God's marvelous light, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, taking refuge in him and being blessed. Fear the Lord, you his people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry. Now, lions are apex predators, but even they occasionally will grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Peter, once again, in his second epistle, says that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now that's economic, that is personal, but it's also salvational. That is to say that the true deliverance that we need is not economic, The true deliverance that we need is not political. The true deliverance that we need is from sin. To be drawn back into a relationship with our Creator and to once again taste of His goodness and to experience what He intends for us, not just today, which is wonderful in and of itself, but of eternity. You are an eternal creature. You are fashioned never to die because you have tasted and you have seen that the Lord is good. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now, the next few verses we also find in Peter's first epistle 
And Peter comments on it. I'm going to go ahead and read it. But first what I want to comment on is David's exhortation here to learn the fear of the Lord. Now, his son Solomon will write that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of both wisdom and knowledge. So when we fear the Lord, or we have a reverent respect, an acknowledgement that he indeed is sovereign over our lives, and that we ought to fear him. Jesus himself repeats that. He says, don't fear those who can take away the life of the body. He says, I'll tell you, I'll tell you who to fear. These are the words of Jesus. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who can take the life from the body, but can also take the life of the soul and place it in hell. That is who you should fear. And David, likewise, is exhorting his hearers, his readers, to fear the Lord, to learn that fear. That is the beginning of wisdom and of knowledge. He says, I will teach you, my children, Whoever loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and of wisdom. But I will also assert that the beginning or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of obedience. That's what David is saying here. When we fear the Lord, Obedience is initialized in our lives. We begin to obey his word, to respond to his directives because we fear him who can assign us to an eternity separated from him in hell if we do not trust him. So fear is the beginning of obedience. Now ultimately, obedience is sustained not by fear, but by love. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But it's initialized first by fear of the Lord, a proper, reverent respect for his awesome power. And notice there, David says, if you want to experience good days, if you love your life and you want to see many good days, then keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. The first evidence that we are responding in obedience to God is observed through what comes out of our mouth. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So where's your heart at? Your speech will reveal it. David said in Psalm 19, he said, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. So our speech reveals that we have taken a hold of a true fear of the Lord and respect for his word and have a desire then to obey him. James talks about the tongue in chapter 3 of his epistle. He 
says, we all stumble in many ways. But anyone who is never at fault in what they say, listen, is perfect or mature, able to keep their whole body in check. That's why I said to you that the initial evidence of obedience is what we say, not necessarily what we do, because what we say is much more difficult to manage. That's what James is saying here. He says, we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us. We can turn the whole animal around, or we can take a ship. And though it is so large and driven by the wind, it is steered by a very small rudder. Likewise, the tongue is a very small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a very small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come both praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Of course not. So if you want to see good days, if you want to experience an abundant life, the counsel of David and then also of James is to learn to control your tongue. And that the way that we control our tongue, church, is by having a new nature, a healthy fear of the Lord and a love for his word. That's what changes us. Otherwise, I mean, and and you've experienced, those of you who have been in church for a long time, you certainly have experienced this. I know I have. Jesus, in in Matthew 7, he says, why do you go after your brother's speck when you have a log in your own eye? We're so quick to speak condemnation or criticism towards others when we've got so much ourselves to deal with. We need to tame the tongue through the new birth, through fear of the Lord, and through love. That's the only way. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. Now we're back to the theme of deliverance. So God is watching you. He has his eyes upon your life. And his ears are attentive to your cries when you call out to him. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all of their troubles. He is very close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. In other words, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and at the proper time, he will lift you up. Don't try to position yourself as better than someone else, critical of them. Just refrain from speaking and allow God to work on you. 
That's what he's saying. God is close to those who are brokenhearted, who recognize their own need, who are crushed in spirit and understand that they are the ones who need to have the beam removed from their eye rather than the speck from their brother's eye. God hears us when we call to him from that humble, broken place. The righteous person will have many troubles, but the Lord will deliver him out of them all. Again, very much echoing the words of Jesus. He says, my peace I give to you. I leave my peace with you as I leave this place. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take courage because I have overcome the world. Again, understand, you are going to have tribulation. But in that tribulation, you can have extraordinary peace. Let the peace of God Well, in your hearts richly, Paul wrote to the Colossians. Let that perfect peace that passes all understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Be anxious for nothing. Keep your eyes focused on him, and he will keep you in perfect peace. These are all promises from the word of God. That in the midst of troubles, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of Hard times. God is with us to deliver us as we have seen. Verse 20, he protects all of his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Now this, of course, is a messianic prophecy. It's recorded with regards to Jesus and his sacrifice because they were coming, the soldiers, do you remember, how they were coming to hasten the death of those hanging upon the cross and they were going to break their legs so they could no longer lift themselves up and and gain breath? And as they came to Jesus, recognizing that he was dead already, they decided not to break his legs. And they said that was a fulfillment of this very scripture. But likewise, for us, the promise of protection remains true. He will protect you as you cry out to him, as you seek his face with all of your heart, as you commit to keeping your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. He will here. He delights in delivering the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. Evil will ultimately slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Jesus in Luke chapter 4 was visiting the synagogue there in Nazareth. And he stood up to read from the scroll. And as he picked it up, he read from this passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 61. And I want to conclude today with this. Because it, to me, suggests not only what Jesus came to do, but the promise of deliverance that is offered to each and every one of us as his children. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom 
for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. You will be called the priests of the Lord, and you will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. Now, for those of you who have been discouraged, for those of you who have been struggling, for those of you in whatever measure have doubted the love of the Lord or the presence of God with you, I want you as you go through this week, to reread this passage in Isaiah 61 that I just gave to you. Is there a better promise in the scriptures that God has come to do these things for us and that our futures are so full of joy, everlasting joy, our inheritance so rich, a double portion in the land? Jeff Wilkinson said to me one time, this is life is hard, but we only go through it once. We know what lies ahead for us. We know what lies ahead for us. Heavenly Father, what a promise. What an incredible, incredible promise you have given us in your word. You sent your son, anointed by the spirit, to free us from captivity, to loosen our chains, to give us the oil of gladness instead of mourning, beauty for ashes, an everlasting joy because of what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. Lord, my prayer for this congregation here this morning is that we would all recognize the bounty that we have received through you the deliverance that we have obtained because of your love. And that like David, we would always have your praise on our lips, recognizing that there is no circumstance that we will ever confront that is too great for us when you walk with us. In Jesus' name, amen.